Hello. It's been a while. Now, as you know, we've been experimenting with different formats of the podcast. We do the short with the short is news uh, and is condensed. We also have done a scripted, more edited versions. You can check the James Baldwin episode. And I did a recent one about empowerment. So it was a little bit more personal. As I keep experimenting with the different formats, it's taking me a little bit more time than often. So there hasn't been enough consistency with the weekly episodes as they should. So we're going to try to put weekly episodes again. We're still going to do interviews and we're still going to do the short and we're still going to do things. But right now, uh, it's a bit of an experimenting phase, uh, doing different types of shows, doing different formats. And I would like to know your feedback. So if you can send me an email at blackinthemaritimes at gmail.com or leave a comment, that would be great. I can read it. And definitely I'm taking your consideration for this. Thank you for everybody that's listening. Thank you for everybody that donates on PayPal and Patreon. And let's start the show. On September 8, 2022, Queen Elizabeth II died at the age of 96. She was the longest serving queen and she was also loved by millions. One of the things that we have to take consider is that she was also the reigning queen of the British Empire. When you look at the British Empire, there is a lot to think about, but as people of color, there is a little bit of history that is not that great. Uh, not only isn't it great, but there is a lot to say about her position, not her as an individual. As an individual, she was loved by a lot of people, and she maintained a neutral position in a lot of subjects. But let's look at the site of colonization and what brought to this 70 years of her reign and what was previous to her reign when her dad, King George, was the king of the British Empire. So. We're going to look at certain clips and we're going to hear them and we're going to explain them and dissect them as we go to this journey of what was colonization of the British Empire and what does it mean in Canada and what does it mean for people of color, especially here in Atlantic Canada. But first, I'm going to pull a clip from Dochebella TV, which is a Dutch television station in Germany. And there is a clip that was in their Instagram that I want to play, which kind of gives you a little bit of a concept of why this is so important and why does it raise so many questions. Let's hear it. The death of Queen Elizabeth II has triggered an outpouring of grief from millions around the world. But in former British colonies and beyond, it's also reopened the conversation about the legacy of colonialism. This story DW News posted on Twitter about a woman who was tortured during Kenya's struggle for independence from British rule gained millions of views in the hours after the news of the British monarch's death. So this is clearly a conversation some people want to have, but others have questioned the timing. To that, one Twitter user asked, when is the appropriate time to talk about the negative impact of colonialism? Another said, black and brown people around the world who were subject to horrendous cruelties and economic deprivation under British colonialism 
are allowed to have feelings about Queen Elizabeth. After all, they were her subjects too. Then there's this take by the legal scholar Melissa Murray who pointed out that Queen Elizabeth was also respected by people in former colonies. I come from a former colony and I admired Queen Elizabeth. I don't want to dance in her grave, in fact I probably want to put flowers on it. But the inconvenient truth is that she inherited and presided over an institution that enriched itself by stealing from, killing and oppressing other people. And those injustices and atrocities have not fully been atoned for. As I hear this, and a lot of people have the same question, is when is the right time to talk about colonialism? When is the right time to talk about oppression? When is the right time to talk about the role of the British Empire in Canada and how those rules transfer from the British Empire to Canada and oppress thousands of indigenous people and thousands of people of color? Um it's hard to say. It's it's really hard to say. And again, some people love Queen Elizabeth. I nothing against the person. The person probably she was a wonderful lady. Uh, people that knew her probably say good things about her. People that didn't knew her uh, say great things about it. In Atlantic Canada, she came a couple of times, and she was highly, highly loved. But when we talk about her legacy, that the legacy has to come with oppression and colonialism and a lot of things that people still to this day it hasn't been a hundred years that a lot of these colonies got their freedom and they had to fight for it at some times and they got their history stolen their possessions stolen their wealth stolen so we're gonna talk about it bit by bit but before we start we got to make sure to know what colonialism is and why colonialism is part of the history of people of color. And we're going to get to another clip that explains very, very well what colonialism is and gives you a brief history of what the British Empire was. Let's hear it. What is colonialism? Colonialism is defined as control by one power over a dependent area or people. It occurs when one nation subjugates another, conquering its population and exploiting it, often while forcing its own language and cultural values upon its people. Also, such control is often done by establishing colonies and generally with the aim of economic dominance. In antiquity, colonialism was practiced by empires such as ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Egypt and Phoenicia. These civilizations all extended their borders into surrounding and non-contiguous areas from about 1550 BC onward and established colonies that drew on the physical and population resources of the people they conquered in order to increase their own power. Modern colonialism is strongly associated with the European colonial period starting with the 15th century when some European states established colonizing empires. Some scholars refer to this point in history as the beginning of the Age of Capital, or the Capitalocene, which is an epoch that encompasses the profit-driven era that has led to climate change and global land change. At first, European colonizing countries followed policies of mercantilism, aiming to strengthen the home country economy, so agreements usually restricted the colony to trading only with the metropole, or the mother country. By the mid-19th century, however, 
the British Empire gave up mercantilism and trade restrictions and adopted the principle of free trade, with few restrictions or tariffs. It is interesting to note that Christian missionaries were active in practically all of the European-controlled colonies because the metropoles were Christian. Historian Philip Hoffman calculated that by 1800, before the Industrial Revolution, Europeans already controlled at least 35% of the globe, and by 1914, they had gained control of 84% of the globe. Colonial powers justified their conquests by asserting that they had a legal and religious obligation to take over the land and culture of indigenous peoples. Conquering nations cast their role as civilizing barbaric, or savage nations, and argued that they were acting in the best interests of those whose lands and peoples they exploited. Despite the power of colonizers who claimed lands that were already owned and populated by indigenous peoples, resistance is an integral part of the story of colonialism. Even before decolonization, indigenous people on all continents staged violent and non-violent resistance to their conquerors. Now, part of this clip that I want to emphasize, it's on the trade and the mercantilism and the commerce. A lot of the wealth of the British Empire came from commerce of goods, and those goods were not made in Britain. They were not made in England, they were not made in Scotland, they were not made in Wales. These were goods that were in countries like India, Nigeria, Malta, um, Canada, Australia, the list goes on and on of all the countries that were colonized by the British Empire. What they did was, is that because they could trade all of these goods, they could sell it to other countries such as Spain, Germany, and the list goes on and on. And that builds wealth, wealth that was taken from countries and continents in Africa in Asia, and the beneficiaries of those goods and the beneficiaries of that wealth was the monarchy. In fact, the monarchy has artifacts, years that are valuable of millions and millions of dollars that do not belong to them. It belongs to people of other countries. And that's the part that we want to emphasize, that a lot of this wealth was made via colonialism. A lot of the poverty that is in countries in Africa and countries in Asia was because of this colonialism, including even Latin America in some sort. Uh, but that's a different ruling because the Spanish and the Portuguese kind of took over that. But still, when we think about colonialism, we only think about the past, but we never confront the present of why are things the way they are? A lot of the rules of racism, a lot of the rules of Jim Crow, and all of those things that we see in history and in our laws are based because of colonialism, and it hasn't gone away. So we have to emphasize that part of this was a monarchy. Then once the monarchy started losing power, they started liberating countries but a lot of the wealth and a lot of the established rules that still exist to this day was made by these people. And we have to make sure that we don't forget that. Now, 
one of the things that I want to emphasize as well is that to this day, there's still artifacts and there's still uh, jewels and there's still money that belongs to other people that the royal family has. And just to give you an example, I'm going to play this clip from a video from Box Media that it explains about the British Museum. So let's hear it and then we're going to analyze it. This is the British Museum. It's the world's largest world history museum, and it draws millions of visitors every year. Inside, it holds more than 8 million cultural and historical artifacts from all over the world, which cover 2 million years of human history. If you follow the museum's recommended list of don't miss items, you'll see its star pieces. Like this Easter Island sculpture that's about a thousand years old, or this bronze sculpture of the Hindu god Shiva. But there's a problem hidden in the museum, and we can see an example of it along this route. Out of those 12 pieces, nearly half have disputed ownership. The British Museum claims those pieces belong there, on display for the world to see. But in recent years, many have been fighting to get them back to where they came from. The list of disputed museum treasures keeps on growing. Should cultural artifacts return to their home countries or be left in Western museums? The subject of intense debate as to who should now own them. Let's start with some context. In the late 1600s, the British Empire began expanding across several continents. It became the largest empire in history, controlling about a quarter of the world's land and population. During its centuries-long rule, the empire took precious resources and wealth from countries all over the world, including cultural and historical artifacts, many of which ended up here, in the British Museum which was founded in 1753 and kept growing to accommodate all the new pieces in its collection. Lots of the items in the museum were legally acquired and are completely undisputed, like this one, a 2,000-year-old Roman vase sold to the museum by a duke in 1945. The problem is with the pieces that are disputed, like the first item you see as soon as you walk in, the Rosetta Stone, taken by British troops from the French in what is now Egypt. Or further in, the Parthenon sculptures, removed from the Acropolis in Athens by a British lord and sent to the British Museum. Or over here, on the floor dedicated to African art, the Benin bronzes, some of the most contentious items in the museum. The Benin bronzes are kind of hard to categorize because they include such a huge range of items, from engraved ivory tusks to brass sculptures to plaques. But they were all produced here, in the Kingdom of Benin, in present-day Nigeria. This wealthy and industrious kingdom produced thousands of objects and art pieces starting in the 1500s. A lot of the items adorned palace walls and were used for religious rituals, but they weren't just decorative. There were visual archives of the kingdom uh, in a society that did not develop uh, written uh, script as we know them. That's Professor Chika Okekeagulu, an art historian and professor from Nigeria who teaches at Princeton University. They told their history, how they narrated 
the histories of, of kingship, of the kingdom, uh, its political and social life. But in 1897, Benin would lose thousands of these cultural pieces. At the time, European colonial powers were expanding south in what was called the Scramble for Africa. They split up the continent into spheres of influence for financial exploitation. All these pink areas were the British ones. Benin, over here, was in Britain's sphere of influence. But the kingdom didn't comply with Britain's trade demands. And in January of 1897, it led to what was called the Benin Disaster, where Benin guards killed seven British emissaries, plus their many guides and servants. In response, 1,200 British troops embarked on a mission called the Benin Punitive Expedition. The British wanted a revenge, but the mission was about more than just that. There were reports of these vast treasures in the palace of the King of Benin, and that if they could retrieve these treasures, uh, sales from it could offset the cost of the invasion. This was all well planned. And so the punitive expedition, in other words, was also an economic enterprise. The British soldiers, armed with machine guns, conquered the city and burned it to the ground, but not before carefully taking thousands of artifacts. They piled them up neatly, photographed them, and even labeled them loot. This photo, taken at the Benin Palace after the raid, shows soldiers with the dismantled plaques that were brought to the British Museum and sold all over the world. And after hundreds of years, the once prosperous kingdom was gone. The region fell under full British colonial control until 1960, when Nigeria, including the city of Benin, gained independence. But even though they were finally free, their historical artifacts were still spread all over the world, locked up in Western institutions like the Leipzig Museum of Ethnology in Germany and the Quai Branly Museum in Paris, and, of course, the British Museum. 1995, in London, that was my first time of seeing an original uh, ancient Benin artwork. Was yes, at the British Museum. Being in the presence of these magnificent objects and knowing that I had to travel all the way from Nigeria to see for the first time these objects, it was a mixture of pride in the achievement of these ancient artists and anger mixed with a sense of loss at what could have been if I only had to travel a few hundred miles. But at this point, you're limited to those uh, privileged like me who could get a visa to travel all the way from Nigeria to England um, to encounter these objects. Most Nigerians will never see them. In March 2000, Benin's royal family tried to change that. They officially requested all cultural property illegally taken be returned to the rightful owner. But for the most part, the British Museum has ignored any requests. The museum is restricted by a government act that prevents it from returning objects. But it has also made its stance clear. In July of 2020, the British Museum told Vox, 
We don't restitute, but we are absolutely committed to lending as widely as possible, including to Nigeria. The museum's foundational value resides in its breadth, scale, complexity, and unity, and as such, is a true library of the world. Chika doesn't see it that way. The British Museum still behaves like a colonial museum. You cannot claim to be um, an encyclopedic collector of stolen objects. But some are starting to reckon with this history. In 2014, the grandson of this British soldier from the 1897 Benin Punitive Expedition returned these two items he had inherited to the Benin royal family. And in 2007, the Benin Dialogue Group was formed. Western museums that hold the bronzes and Nigerian government representatives have been discussing potential solutions ever since. But as of today, none of the bronzes have been returned. But this is just one story. This legacy is bigger than the Benin bronzes. There are hundreds of contested items in the British Museum, with their own rich histories and with original owners trying to retrieve them. But the problem is even bigger than the British Museum. It's a legacy of centuries of colonial power that repeats itself again and again, with different artifacts in different museums. Because these requests aren't just about items. They are also about cultural and historical identity and who gets to own it. This is a long-term project. It may last beyond my own lifetime, but the point is that it's now to start that process. We cannot wait any longer for a next generation to even begin the necessary task and project of cultural reconstitution. One of the things that shocked me personally is that this professor says the most honest and clearest way possible. He can only see part of his history of the Benin Empire in England, and he has to get a visa to get there. A lot of Nigerians don't have access to a visa to go to England to see their history. And this goes on with Indian people. Uh, this goes on with some Asians, uh, especially in the part of Pakistan as well, uh, Sri Lanka. And imagine that. Imagine that you have something that belongs to you and somebody takes it and you cannot have it back but they literally stole it, but you cannot have it back. And and I'm going to put a clip of a British comedian uh, that kind of says the whole thing, kind of explains it in a funny, funny way. But it is shocking to know that history from countries has been stolen from them. And they know where it is. You know where it is, but you can't get it back because they decide not to. So... Let's hear this clip. It's, it's very funny, but it's there's a lot of truth to it. The clip comes from the comedian James Agaster, and it's from his Netflix special. So if you want to see the whole comedy special, you can see it on Netflix. And here's the clip. A long time ago, 
but not long enough ago that it's not still very relevant. <laughs> Everyone in Britain got in a big old boat and we set sail and we robbed, and this will sound far-fetched, everyone in the world. <laughs> Do you remember that? What a spree that was. Do you remember the great heist? What a spree. And we got all the swag, didn't we? And we took it back to old Blighty and we hid it, this is the clever part, we hid it in a museum. <laughs> Last place anyone looks. Now it's the modern day and all the countries who stole stuff from are asking for their stuff back. But uh, don't look worried, we're totally saying the blanket, no. <laughs> Now, a few of you are sitting there, I can see your angry faces, like, so what? Fighters keepers, shut up! And... <laughs> Listen, in your defence, fighters keepers, shut up has worked very well for us so far. <laughs> Against all the others have knocked out, out of the park, fighters keepers, shut up. But even you've got to admit, right, if someone stole something off you as an individual, it's your favourite thing, and they nicked it, and you knew who had nicked it, by the way, for a fact, not a hunch. You know who's stolen it. Everybody knows. It's common knowledge. Some people have written books about it. They have definitely nicked it off you. <laughs> you go to ask for it back, and they're just standing there. They're not even running away. They're twice your size. They ain't scared. They haven't even bothered to hide it. They've done the opposite of hiding it, actually. They've put it in a glass display case. <laughs> it's lit from seven different angles, real clear what it is. There's no dispute it's the same thing that once belonged to you, because there's a plaque next to it. <laughs> says exactly what it is at the top of the plaque and then a paragraph underneath about how important it is to you and your culture. <laughs> You'd be forgiven for thinking, mm, I'm pretty sure they haven't got a leg to stand on here. <laughs> Probably going to take this home today. They must have been so confident all them countries when they asked for their stuff back, just walking up to Britain, saying to their friends, wait in the car, don't even need you. <laughs> be back in a jiffy, mate. Hey, man. Uh, a while ago, a lot of your ancestors stole loads of stuff from my ancestors? Yeah, I'm here to take them home. Let's write this wrong. What do you say? They must have thought the British person at the door was going to go, absolutely, you can have them back. We stole them, after all. But instead, we went, I don't think so. <laughs> We're still looking at it. <laughs> Yeah, just looking at it these days. And there's a lot of other people who haven't seen it yet we'd quite like to show it to. So, not right now, selfish. <laughs> Don't sulk about it. Look, no, it's no hard feelings, mate. Hey, you can look at it. Come on in. Have a look. Have a look. Seem familiar? <laughs> <laughs> Stand behind the rope. That's why the British Museum's so busy all the time. No British people ever go in there. It's full of people from abroad looking at their own stuff. <laughs> as funny as that is, it's not... He's not joking. I mean, it's funny, people are laughing, but it's... He's not joking. He's actually telling the truth. That's exactly what happened. Uh, and again, this is revenue for the British government that the British government does not share with the people that they stole their history or their artifacts. And those same people have to pay for that. They have to pay to see that, uh, which is sad. And again, I don't want to emphasize uh, about what 
Queen Elizabeth did or did not. Queen Elizabeth was a woman, was a mother, was a grandmother, and not necessarily the person. It's the representation of what she was and now what her son is, King Charles III. And it begs the question, do we really need a monarchy? And if we do need a monarchy uh, as Canadians, do we really want that to represent us? That's the question that I have. Is it something that as Canadians, do we really want this to be part of our legacy? Because again, this is just a little bit of the history of what happened within Queen Elizabeth's reign. Uh, but we haven't even got to what happened here in Canada with Indigenous people. Indigenous people were slaughtered and were mistreated and were colonized by the British Empire. And it's something that we cannot erase, but we can definitely try to fix it. I don't really want to go too deep into this because, again, somebody died. And again, I'm pretty sure her family and millions of people will miss her. So rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth. And if you want to know more about her, I'm going to play this clip from the Wall Street Journal. And again, let's think about history. History is what makes us the people we are today. And in order for us not to make the same mistakes, we cannot forget history. So if you like this, please like and subscribe. Uh, like us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Thank you for everybody that donates on Patreon and PayPal. And we'll see you next time. Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor was born in April 1926, the first child of the Duke and Duchess of York. While cherished by the royal family, Elizabeth was never expected to become queen. Her grandfather was king, her uncle was next in line, but in 1936 her grandfather died and her uncle abdicated. So we greet England's new king, George VI. Her father became king in 1937, making her first in line to the throne. Elizabeth's induction to royal duties began during World War II, when the 14-year-old made her first public broadcast. I can truthfully say to you all that we children at home are full of cheerfulness and courage. We are trying to do all we can to help our gallant sailors, soldiers and airmen. In 1947, Elizabeth married Philip Mountbatten, Prince of Greece and Denmark, and a lieutenant in the Royal Navy. On the balcony at Buckingham, where many kings and queens have appeared, Princess Elizabeth happily shares the supreme day of her life with her countrymen. The couple's first son, Charles, was born in 1948, followed by Anne, Andrew and Edward. While she was on an official visit to Kenya, Elizabeth's life would change forever. On February the 6th, 1952, her father, King George, failed to recover from an operation and died at just 56 years old. Elizabeth was flown back to London and immediately seated to the throne. The high and mighty princess, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, is now, by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory, 
become Queen Elizabeth II. The Queen was just 25 years old when she started her royal duties as head of the monarchy. Even as Britain lost most of its colonies, she remained head of state of 14 countries other than the UK. She travelled extensively and was received with admiration by millions. Mr President, South Africa has a special place in my heart and in the hearts of the British people. Famously fond of horses, the Queen's love of her corgis was also no secret. They appeared with her in a much-loved video shown during the opening ceremony of London's 2012 Olympic Games. Good evening, Mr. Bond. Good evening, Your Majesty. She rarely permitted interviews, so not much was known of her private life. But this seclusion from the press changed in the 1990s. The Queen described 1992 as Annus Horribilis, Latin for horrible year. After Windsor Castle, one of the Queen's royal residences caught fire, and three of her children announced they were divorcing or separating from their spouses. This included the very public separation of her eldest son, Prince Charles, from Princess Diana. People started to question if the royal family was needed and if they reflected modern Britain. The Queen came under criticism in 1997, when she didn't return quickly enough to London to share in the public outpouring of grief after Princess Diana died in a car crash in Paris. I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. After this speech, public opinion started to turn in favour of the royal family. Following a well-crafted public relations plan and the marriages between Kate Middleton and Prince William in 2011, and Prince Harry and Meghan Markle in 2018. But just two years after their marriage, Harry and Meghan announced they were stepping away from royal duties in search of privacy from a growing media spotlight. They came to an agreement with the Queen where they would forfeit their royal titles as well as any royal funding. Their departure marked a watershed moment for a royal family that had long considered public service its foremost duty. In her final years, the Queen addressed her country and Commonwealth as it was swept up in the coronavirus pandemic. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. This time we join with all nations across the globe in a common endeavour, using the great advances of science and our instinctive compassion to heal. We are interrupting our normal programmes to bring you an important announcement. You're watching BBC News from London. A short while ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of His Royal Highness Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. In April 2021, Prince Philip, the Queen's husband of over 70 years, died at the age of 99. Due to coronavirus restrictions, his funeral was a small family affair, attended by only 30 people. There were concerns for the Queen's health throughout 2022. 
She tested positive for COVID-19 in February and in June was forced to miss some Platinum Jubilee events to mark her 70 years on the throne due to mobility issues, the palace said. One of the Queen's final acts was to appoint Conservative Liz Truss as Prime Minister, the 15th person to hold that position during her reign. The Queen will be laid to rest alongside Philip at the King George V Memorial Chapel in Windsor. Her death means the crown now passes to Charles, with William next in line to the throne. In her 2018 Christmas broadcast, the Queen reflected on what had united her kingdom, the Commonwealth of 2.4 billion people and over 50 countries. Its strength lies in the bonds of affection it promotes, and a common desire to live in a better, more peaceful world. Even with the most deeply held differences, treating the other person with respect and as a fellow human being is always a good first step towards greater understanding. <laughs>